Section 1 of A Half Century of Conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Hively. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter 1 1700 to 1713. Eve of War. The war which in the British colonies was called Queen Anne's War, and in England the War of the Spanish Succession, was the second of a series of four conflicts, which ended in giving to Great Britain a maritime and colonial preponderance over France and Spain. So far as concerns the colonies and the sea, these several wars may be regarded as a single protracted one, broken by intervals of truce. The three earlier of them, it is true, were European contests, begun and waged on European disputes. Their American part was incidental, and apparently subordinate, yet it involved questions of prime importance in the history of the world. The War of the Spanish Succession sprang from the ambition of Louis the Fourteenth. We are apt to regard the story of that gorgeous monarch as a tale that is told, but his influence shapes the life of nations to this day. At the beginning of his reign, two roads lay before him, and it was a momentous question for posterity, as for his own age, which one of them he would choose. Whether he would follow the wholesome policy of his great minister Colbert, or obey his own vanity and arrogance, and plunge France into exhausting wars. Whether he would hold to the principle of tolerance embodied in the Edict of Nantes, or do the work of fanaticism and priestly ambition. The one course meant prosperity, progress, and the rise of a middle class. The other meant bankruptcy and the dragonades, and this was the king's choice. Crushing taxation, misery, and ruin followed till France burst out at last in a frenzy, drunk with the wild dreams of Rousseau. Then came the terror and the Napoleonic Wars, and reaction on reaction, revolution on revolution, down to our own day. Louis placed his grandson on the throne of Spain and insulted England by acknowledging as her rightful king the son of James II, whom she had disposed. Then England declared war. Canada and the northern British colonies had but a short breathing time since the Peace of Ryswick, and both were tired of slaughtering each other, and both needed rest. Yet before the declaration of war, the Canadian officers of the Crown prepared, with their usual energy, to meet the expected crisis. One of them wrote, If war be declared, it is certain that the king can very easily conquer and ruin New England. The French of Canada often use the name New England as applying to the British colonies in general. They are twice as populous as Canada, he goes on to say, but the people are great cowards, totally undisciplined, and ignorant of war, while the Canadians are brave, hardy, and well-trained. We have, besides, twenty-eight companies of regulars, and could raise six thousand warriors from our Indian allies. Four thousand men could easily lay waste all the northern English colonies, to which end we must have five ships of war, with one thousand troops on board, who must land at Penobscot, where they must be joined by two thousand regulars, militia, and Indians, sent from Canada by the way of the Chaudière and the Kennebec. Then the whole force must go to Portsmouth, take it by assault, leave a garrison there, and march to Boston, laying waste all the towns and villages by the way. After destroying Boston, the army must march for New York, while the fleet follows along the coast. 
nothing could be easier says the writer for the road is good and there is plenty of horses and carriages the troops would ruin everything as they advanced and new york would quickly be destroyed and burned another plan scarcely less absurd was proposed about the same time by the celebrated limon de belleville the essential point he says is to get possession of boston but there are difficulties and risks in the way nothing he adds referring to the other plan seems difficult to persons without experience but unless we are prepared to raise a great and costly armament our only hope is in surprise we should make it in winter when the seafaring population which is the chief strength of the place is absent on long voyages a thousand canadians four hundred regulars and as many indians should leave quebec in november ascend the chardier then descend the kennebec approach boston under cover of the forest and carry it by a night attack apparently he did not know that but for its lean neck then but a few yards wide boston was an island and that all around for many leagues the forest that was to have covered his approach had already been devoured by numerous busy settlements he offers to lead the expedition and declares that if he is honored with the command he will warrant that the new england capital will be forced to submit to king louis after which new york can be seized in its turn in contrast to those incisive proposals another french officer breathed nothing but peace Brulon, governor of acadia wrote to the governor of massachusetts to suggest that with the consent of their masters they should make a treaty of neutrality the english governor being dead the letter came before the council who received it coldly canada and not acadia was the enemy they had to fear moreover boston merchants made good profit by supplying the acadians with necessaries which they could get in no other way and in time of war these profits though lawless were greater than in a time of peace but what chiefly influenced the council over the overtures of brouillon was a passage in his letter reminding them that by the treaty of ryswick the new england people had no right to fish within the sight of the acadian coast this they flatly denied saying that the new england people had fished there time out of mind and that if brulon should molest them they would treat it as an act of war while the new england colonies and especially massachusetts and new hampshire had most cause to deprecate a war the prospect of one was also extremely unwelcome to the people of new york the conflict lately closed had borne hard upon them through the attacks of the enemy and still more through the derangement of their industries they were distracted too with the factions rising out of the recent revolution under jacob leesler new york had been the bulwark of the colonies farther south who feeling themselves safe had given their protector little help and that little grudgingly seeming to regard the war as no concern of theirs three thousand and fifty-one pounds provincial currency was the joint contribution of virginia maryland east jersey and connecticut to the aid of new york during five years of the late war massachusetts could give nothing even if she would her hands being full with the defense of her own borders colonel Correy wrote to the board of trade that new york could not bear alone the cost of defending herself that the other colonies were stuffed with commonwealth notions and were of a sour temper in opposition to government so that parliament ought to take them in hand and compel each to do its part in the common cause to this lord cornbury adds that rhode island and connecticut are even more stubborn than the rest hate all true subjects of the queen 
and will not give a farthing to the war so long as they can help it. Each province lived in selfish isolation, wrecking little of its neighbor's woes. New York, left to fight her own battles, was in a wretched condition for defense. It is true that, unlike the other colonies, the king had sent her a few soldiers, counting at this time about 180, all told, but they had been left so long without pay that they were in a state of scandalous destitution. They would have been left without rations had not three private gentlemen, Schuler, Livingston, and Corlant, advanced money for their supplies, which seems never to have been repaid. They are reported to have been without shirts, breeches, shoes, or stockings, and in such a shameful condition that the women when passing them are obliged to cover their eyes. The Indians ask, says the governor, do you think us such fools as to believe a king who cannot clothe his soldiers can protect us from the French with their fourteen hundred men all well equipped? The forts were no better than their garrisons. The governor complains that those of Albany and Schenectady are so weak and ridiculous that they look more like pounds for cattle than forts. At Albany the rotten stockades were falling from their own weight. If New York had cause to complain of those whom she sheltered, she gave herself cause of complaint for those who sheltered her. The five nations of the Iroquois had always been her allies against the French, had guarded her borders and fought her battles. What they wanted in return were gifts, attentions, just dealings, and active aid in war. But they got them in scant measure. Their treatment by the province was short-sighted, if not ungrateful. New York was a mixture of races and religions, not yet fused into a harmonious body politic, divided in interests and torn with intestine disputes. Its assembly was made up in large part of men unfitted to pursue a consistent scheme of policy, or spend the little money at their disposal on any objects but those of a present and visible interest. The royal governors, even when personally competent, were hampered by want of means and by factious opposition. The five nations were robbed by land speculators, cheated by traders, and feebly supported in their constant wars with the French. Spasmodically, as it were, on occasions of crisis, they were summoned to Albany, soothed with such presents as could be got from unwilling legislators, or now and then from the crown, and exhorted to fight vigorously in the common cause. The case would have been far worse but for a few patriotic men, with Peter Schuler at their head, who understood the character of these Indians and labored strenuously to keep them in what was called their allegiance. The proud and fierce Confederates had suffered greatly in the late war. Their numbers had been reduced about one-half, and they now counted little more than twelve hundred warriors. They had learned a bitter and humiliating lesson, and their arrogance had changed to distrust and alarm. Though hating the French, they had learned to respect their military activity and prowess, and to look askance on the Dutch and English, who rarely struck a blow in their defense, and suffered their hereditary enemy to waste their fields and burn their towns. The English called the five nations British subjects, on which the French taunted them with being British slaves, and told them that the King of England had ordered the Governor of New York to poison them. This invention had great effect. The Iroquois capital, Onondaga, was filled with wild rumors. The credulous savages were tossed among doubts, suspicions, and fears. Some were in terror of poison, and some of witchcraft. They believed that the rival European nations had leagued to destroy them and divide their lands, 
and that they were bewitched by sorcerers, both French and English. After the Peace of Ryswick, and even before it, the French governor kept agents among them. Some of these were soldiers like Jonquil, Mericot, or Longu, and some were Jesuits like Vouillard, Lombeville, or Vaillon. The Jesuits showed their unusual ability and skill in their difficult and perilous task. The Indians derived various advantages from their presence, which they regarded also as a flattering attention, while the English, jealous of their influence, made feeble attempts to counteract it by sending Protestant clergymen to Onondaga. But, writes Lord Bellamont, it is next to impossible to prevail with the ministers to live among the Indians. They, the Indians, are so nasty as never to wash their hands or the utensils they dress their victuals with. Even had their zeal been proof to these afflictions, the ministers would have been no match for their astute opponents. In vain, Bellamont assured the Indians that the Jesuits were the greatest liars and impostors in the world. In vain he offered a hundred dollars for every one of them whom they should deliver into his hands. They would promise to expel them, but their minds were divided, and they stood in fear of one another. While one party distrusted and disliked the priests, another was begging the governor of Canada to send more. Others took a practical view of the question. If the English sell goods cheaper than the French, we will have ministers. If the French sell them cheaper than the English, we will have priests. Others, again, wanted neither Jesuits nor ministers, because both of you, English and French, have made us drunk with the noise of your praying. The aims of the propagandists on both sides were secular. The French wished to keep the five nations neutral in the event of another war. The English wished to spur them to active hostility. But while the former pursued their purpose with energy and skill, the efforts of the latter were intermittent and generally feeble. The nations, writes Schuler, are full of factions. There was a French party and an English party in every town, especially in Onondaga, the center of intrigue. French influence was strongest at the western end of the Confederacy, among the Senecas, where the French officer Jean Caire, an Iroquois by adoption, had won many to France, and it was weakest at the eastern end among the Mohawks, who were nearest to the English settlements. Here the Jesuits had labored long and strenuously in the work of conversion, and from time to time they had led their numerous proselytes to remove to Canada, where they settled at St. Louis, or Kanawaga, on the right bank of the St. Lawrence, a little above Montreal, where their descendants still remain. It is said at the beginning of the 18th century, two-thirds of the Mohawks had thus been persuaded to cast their lot with the French, and from enemies to become friends and allies. Some of the Onedas and a few of the other Iroquois nations joined them and strengthened the new mission settlement, and the Kanawagas afterwards played an important part between the rival European colonies. The Far Indians, or Upper Nations as the French called them, consisted of the tribes of the Great Lakes and adjacent nations, Ottawas, Potawatomis, Sacs, Foxes, Sioux, and many more. It was from these that Canada drew the furs by which she lived. Most of them were nominal friends and allies of the French, who, in the interest of trade, strove to keep these wildcats from tearing one another's throats, and who were in constant alarm lest they should again come to blows with their old enemies, the Five Nations, in which case they would call on Canada for help. 
thus imperiling those pacific relations with the iroquois confederacy which the french were laboring constantly to secure in regard to the far indians the french the english and the five iroquois nations all had distinct and opposing interests the french wished to engross their furs either by inducing the indians to bring them down to montreal or by sending traders into their country to buy them the english with a similar object wished to divert the far indians from montreal and draw them to albany but this did not suit the purpose of the five nations who being sharp politicians and keen traders as well as bold and enterprising warriors wished to act as middlemen between the beaver hunting tribes and the albany merchants well knowing that good profit might thus accrue in this state of affairs the converted iroquois settled at kawanaga played a peculiar part in the province of new york goods for the indian trade were of excellent quality and comparatively abundant and cheap while among the french especially in the time of war they were often scarce and dear the kanawagas accordingly whom neither the english nor the french dared offend used their position to carry on a contraband trade between new york and canada by way of lake champlain and the hudson they brought to albany furs from the country of the far indians and exchanged them for guns blankets cloths knives beads and the like these they carried to canada and sold to the french traders who in this way and often in this alone supplied themselves with the goods necessary for bartering furs from the far indians this lawless trade of the kanawagas went on even in time of war and opposed as it was to every principle of canadian policy it was generally connived at by the french authorities as the only means of obtaining the goods necessary for keeping their indian allies in good humor it was injurious to english interests but the fur traders of albany and also the commissioners charged with indian affairs being dutchmen converted by force into british subjects were with a few eminent exceptions cool in their devotion to the british crown while the merchants of the port of new york from whom the fur traders drew their supplies thought more of their own profits than of the public good the trade with canada through the kawanagas not only gave aid and comfort to the enemy but continually admitted spies into the colony for whom the governor of canada gained information touching english movements and designs the dutch traders of albany and the importing merchants who supplied them with indian goods had a strong interest in preventing active hostilities with canada which would have spoiled their trade so too and for similar reasons had influential persons in canada the french authorities moreover thought it impolitic to harass the frontiers of new york by war parties since the five nations might come to the aid of their dutch and english allies and so break the peaceful relations which the french were anxious to maintain with them thus it happened that during the first six or seven years of the eighteenth century there was a virtual truce between canada and new york and the whole burden of the war fell upon new england or rather upon massachusetts with its outlying district of maine and its small and weak neighbor new hampshire end of section one recording by jeff hively